0: Well, good to have you, Aaron. Uh, so today we have Dr. Aaron Brown going to be uh, talking with us today about servant leadership. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you got to where you're at, kind of some things that influenced you. Um, and yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's, those are great questions. Thank you, Dr. Phil, for having me. Um, you know, I hate that name. <laughs> I want to say it. Because um, I love you. And so uh, a little bit about my background, I've got about 10 years in higher education experience. So uh, for those who don't know, I worked at Oral Roberts University for about 10 years and spent all those 10 years in student life. So I was a residential life director for five years. And then for two years, I was the director of student experience. And for two years after that, I was the director of student leadership development. Uh, So a lot of my experience has been around leading teams of uh, millennials, Gen Z, and figuring out best practices and the best ways to lead. Uh, I completed my doctorate in strategic leadership last September and did it over Generation Z, uh, three major challenges that I perceive that Gen Z uh, was facing and then solutions that for and nonprofits can utilize in order to uh, onboard and develop probably the most anxious and depressed generation in the past 80 years. So that's what I did my dissertation stuff on. And yeah. servant leadership is, is a topic that I strive to practice when I was working at ORU that I continue to strive uh, as our uh, millennial ministry director at Antioch Church here in Colorado Springs. I also teach finance online for a doctoral program, and I'm also a consultant with nonprofits as well, doing product development and content development. So Uh, Those are some of the many hats that I wear. As I mentioned, I live in beautiful Colorado Springs, Colorado. I feel like it's my calling to be an evangelist (laughs) of how beautiful Colorado Springs is. And I live here with my little dog Fenrir and uh, we take every opportunity we can to be out in the mountains playing. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about me.
0: Very great, good. So today you're gonna to talk to us a lot about specifically servant leadership. Yes. Um, so where did servant leadership begin?
1: It's a great question. Um, there's a guy named Robert Greenleaf and sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, he had retired from uh, AT&T and he had gone through this very long corporate career with AT&T. And by the time he retired, he asked the question, he has kind of this existential question of what is the meaning of my career and Mm -hmm. my life. And that's something that typically, uh, people who are in their sixties, seventies, maybe even late fifties, they start asking that question, like, has my life had meaning? Yeah. And so he's asking that question and he was deeply influenced by a book By a German writer named Hermann Hess. And this book is called Journey to the East. It's a good read. I recommend everybody read it. It's pretty quick, it's more of a novella than anything. And in this book, there is uh, this group of travelers that bandy together and they are on their way to find uh, kind of this supreme leader, uh, this guy that. potentially is going to change their lives, almost like a Jesus-like or Messiah-like figure. And so these guys set out on their journey. And when they set out on their journey, uh, they hire this young kid to uh, serve them. And the servant becomes such an integral part of their, their life and their journey that when the servant goes missing, uh, they actually... And they actually stop their journey for this this great wise man and instead Mm. go looking for him. And eventually they find the great wise man, uh, only to find that it was the servant that was among them. Mm. And so this has a a deep impact on uh, Robert Greenleaf. And he begins to kind of write a treatise on what it means to be a servant leader. There's a book called... um, servant leadership by robert greenleaf first publication mm-hmm. was in 1971 or 72 and he actually uh, writes several uh short pieces on both servant leadership and then institutionally what does servant leadership look like
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: institutionally so he talks about boards uh like boards of regents boards of on corporations, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that that servant leadership was the best way to lead people develops out of that story by Herman Hess. And I would even say a little bit of Greenleaf's uh, late life crisis of, of hoping that his life has had meaning thus far. Mm-hmm. Awesome,
0: awesome. So what does this model of servant leadership look like? Um, especially for students who don't maybe know anything about it. What is it? How would you describe it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Greenleaf, he he uses a sentence that's become very famous in the servant leadership movement. Uh, and basically he says the desire to serve, it begins with a natural feeling that one wants to serve and to serve first. And so what he means by this is maybe you see a need, or you see a void in leadership, uh, or you just see a need in general, and you take it upon yourself, there is a desire to meet that need. And then Greenleaf goes on to expound on that, to say uh, that it's, it's a conscious choice that brings one to aspire to lead. So um, mm-hmm. so it's both innate and it's both conscious at the same time. And mm-hmm. some of it is abstract. Uh, you know, compared to other leadership theories yeah. and models, there's... Uh, you know, there's not a lot of quantitative research necessarily on yeah. servant leadership. So it's, it's, in some ways it can be abstract, but in other ways it can be very practical. Um, but in other ways it can be difficult to understand exactly what Greenleaf was getting at. And so there's a guy named Larry Spears. Um, Larry's a great guy, used to oversee the Greenleaf Center. Now he oversees the Spears Center for Leadership. Um, And he went through Greenleaf's writings mm-hmm. and pulled out 10 aspects that he saw in those writings. And I'll just read those 10 off uh, yeah. real quick. So 10 aspects, uh, listening, empathy, healing, awareness, persuasion, conceptualization, foresight, stewardship, commitment to the growth of people, and building community. Uh, so, so he looked at those 10 aspects and that's kind of what true, like, true servant leadership is really built off of. Now you've got a lot of, uh, maybe we call them pop press uh, authors who have taken servant leadership and really you know, spun it in so many different directions. But if you wanna to get to like a core understanding of what Greenleaf and Spears and others have talked about with servant leadership, uh, I think, I think that Spears's ten aspects uh, are very important. Okay. In that respect. Yeah.
0: So, if like from your experience, um, like what are some ways that leaders can live out with servant leadership, especially like maybe students who are just getting out into the workplace? a new job. They're kind of low on the totem pole, for instance. Yeah. What does that look like? And even how does that morph as they advance in their careers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there has been probably for about two decades, there has been a heavy emphasis on uh, turning students into leaders. Mm-hmm. And this is not so much a bad thing as, much of, it's not a bad thing. I think that it just complicates the maturation and growth of graduates. So mm-hmm. it kind of propels them into the workforce and you know, jokes that we made with millennials. I is a millennial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, jokes that we made with millennials is I've been here for three days. Why am I not running the company?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, so, as I've seen in, in college education, I was like, well, you know, we need to pull this back a little bit and actually do more to train students to be more uh, civic minded and more teamwork oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say is, you know, if you are a recent college graduate mm-hmm. and you're going in the workforce, if I was to look at these 10 aspects that Spears laid out from Greenleaf's writings, um, I would say awareness may be one of the biggest ones that that a college student, uh, college graduate, could mm-hmm. uh, could really work with and and realize, be aware that you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you do know, or you mostly know what you think you know mm-hmm. but be aware that that you are the low person on the totem pole and there's nothing wrong with that it's a launch pad mm-hmm. um so be aware of of who you are on the inside i would say be aware of your strengths be aware of your weaknesses and be mm-hmm. aware of your insecurities as well because insecurities come out uh, mm-hmm when, uh, when our strengths and weaknesses are in that tension. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think awareness would be a big one. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I was to, I would say listening, I think listening skills is one of the most forgotten, uh, traits that we have had, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most forgotten traits that's not really grown, um, as part of our maturation process, yeah. so learn how to listen, learn how to actively listen. And so when your boss is telling you something, if you don't know what they're saying, if you don't know what they're telling you to do, say, yeah. I understand this, but I think I hear you saying that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where did I get it right? Where did where did I get it wrong in yeah. in what I'm hearing? Yeah. So, those would be a couple of things that I would pull out.
0: Yeah. So how do you, how do you build those skills of, of listening and awareness, like in the workplace, or even like as a professor, how do I help my students to, yeah. to grow in those areas?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. Especially
0: because like as a, as a psychologist, my awareness for clients, is something that I help build, but mm-hmm. it's different probably in the teaching aspect. There's probably some similarities, but like, how do you help them to be able to listen and be more aware of themselves for the
1: work. Yeah. You know, one thing that I have come across in the last couple of years uh, is the art of asking good questions Mm -hmm. and not just asking good questions, but asking the right questions. Yeah. So I'll have conversations with, with people, maybe, you know, it's kind of in a mentorship role or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I try to be gentle because that's servant leadership, right? (laughs) I try to be gentle, but I'm also kind of blunt. Um, I was like, okay, you know, you've asked this question, but there's a better question to ask. And let me tell you what the better question is. So I think the art of asking better questions um, is something that you as a professor can model for your students. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I'm a huge fan of Albert Bandura's social learning theory. Mm -hmm. And, um, and what I would say with that is, um, we, as, as servant leaders, we, as more mature people Mm -hmm. and more developed professionals, we do have a responsibility to, uh, to model behavior for those who are underneath us. And so, Mm uh, you know, lots of things may be taught, but they're more so caught when it comes to life lessons. So I would say with students, you know, if somebody asked like a not great question, I would stop and say, you know, you're on the right track. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about asking a better question. And this is Mm -hmm. what I think the better question looks like. Yeah. Um, And then, so like listening skills, model listening skills for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I hear you saying is this. Is that accurate? Right. Um, you know, and and a lot of what I've learned from from listening skills is actually uh, from you know psychology courses, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, the one of my favorite books, The Skilled Helper, I'm sure you're mm-hmm. familiar with that Phil.
0: Ian, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, that book radically changed how I communicate with people. And that's been, you know, that's been almost 14 years since, since I first cracked that book open, but just the art of conversating with people and modeling that behavior. Um, If you're a young person, you know, first starting out in your career, uh, I think the best place to start is, do you know what it means to listen? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you, are you paying attention, not just to, to what is being said? But are you paying attention to the nonverbals uh, that are coming across from your boss or manager, you know, whoever uh, mm. their face and their actions? And are you taking the time to ask better questions of your managers and bosses? Mm. Yeah,
0: good. Another question is like so you you briefly mentioned kind of some of the uh, like weaknesses of mm. um, from the generation that I teach. Mm-hmm. Um, if you 're looking kind of like our generation and the generation that I teach, what are some specific like weaknesses or strengths that that research is showing in those generations if if there is any
1: are you saying like comparing millennials to gen Z right yeah okay. or
0: yeah or even just just looking at you know gen Z for instance like what are some strengths that they have yeah. as well as some areas that are are needing growth
1: okay um, so real quick let 's just because I do this all the time, I'm going to yeah. take the time to do it now. Um, so Gen Z is age seven to 25 this yeah. year. Mm-hmm. So that's what their age range is. Yeah. And the Millennials are age 26 to about 38, 39 this year. Okay. Uh, so I just do that to help people draw distinctions yeah, when good. we're talking about those two generations. Yeah. I would say... I think Gen Z is actually in a little bit of a more humble position Mm -hmm. than millennials have been. Uh, Mm -hmm. Due to the parenting styles, upbringings that us millennials got, generally speaking, uh, we were told we were going to change the world. Uh, You can't, you know, you will succeed, get mentors, um, you know, get all this leadership experience, things like Mm -hmm. that. But, uh, you know, we were the first kind of like trophy kids in a sense, Uh, you know, we got trophies for breathing and things like that. Yeah. Um, And that's not everybody's experience, but in in a general sense. So with Gen Z, they have grown up uh, in the shadow of like the economic crisis. And now a lot of them are going through this COVID crisis as well. And Mm -hmm. what that tells them is that the world is very uncertain Mm -hmm. and Like their Gen X parents, uh, they are seeking, they tend to seek safety and security. So Mm -hmm. I think there are some attitudes in Gen Z that are a lot more humble. Uh, They're not necessarily, I'm not saying that they're not world changers, I'm not saying that they're not trying to change the world, but I think there's a little bit more of a humility when it comes to career uh, maturation and progress compared to. Their mm-hmm. millennial counterparts. Yeah. Uh, with that said, um, I think that one of the the weaknesses of Gen Z is the need for constant validation. So that's something that has continued to to develop uh, throughout this this demographic of Gen Z, yeah. and we're hearing plenty of bosses say. Um, I'm just exhausted that our Gen Z employees are like, did I do this right? Did I do this right? Did I do this right? And when I consult nonprofits on Gen Z and onboarding practices and things like that, um, you know, we've got this baby boomer Gen X leadership.
0: Um, That's
1: kind of, uh, so it's an age kind of 45 and up, 50 and up. Mm -hmm. Uh, leadership age bracket and they are just like their heads are like spinning and reeling because what they initially hear me saying is well you're going to have to hold gen z's hand a lot and that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily what i'm saying i mean they are like well they just need to learn by hard knocks and da 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 and i'm like you know, yeah, if, if you Mm -hmm. want to try that, you go right ahead. I'm just the consultant. Don't, don't listen to anything I'm saying. Um, But I see it as a great maturation and development opportunity for those older leaders. But as far as Gen Z is concerned, uh, I do think that uh, the higher levels of anxiety that Mm -hmm. is exhibited in in this generation is due to multiple factors that we don't have to get into here. But uh, I think Gen Z is going to have to take a concerted effort uh, to work on the anxiety component, and mm-hmm. I think one of the disconcerting things that we see in our society is this willingness to to own or make make anxiety a part of our identity, yeah and I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychologist, but I do think that there's something problematic about that. Yeah. Um, I would say in my own life, what a lot of people don't know is uh, I have struggled with a genetic anxiety disorder uh, from age five into mm-hmm. my adulthood. And somewhere in my mid to late 20s, I discovered this and I said, I don't want to live like this with, mm-hmm. with this genetic disorder controlling me. Yeah, I want to be able to, um, to deal with this in a healthy way. And so I went to counseling and and began to deal with it. So, so a couple of cautions that I would have for Gen Z is, um, you know, any mental health issue that you're dealing with is not your identity. It's not the most defining factor about you. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also not trying to, to downplay the severity of, of dealing with those challenges. Yeah. Um, so I think at some point, Gen Z uh, will have to say, I, w- I want things to be different in my life. Yeah. Therefore, I'm going to take these steps where my manager doesn't have to hold my hand so much, or I'm going to take these steps so that my relationships are more healthy. around me and I don't need constant affirmation to know that the world is okay yeah yeah yeah
0: great so you talked about some consultation that you do with various organizations uh, Mm -hmm. companies what are like some current things that you're helping companies like better understand like on a day-to-day basis
1: yeah so the biggest thing that that continues to pop up yeah organizations is we we don't know how to onboard mm-hmm. uh, we don't know how to onboard these new gen Z employees uh, yeah. want to we've been thinking of them as millennials for too long, and we're trying to develop them the way that we would a Gen Xer or a boomer and it's mm-hmm. just not working. Yeah. So, so typically what I consult on is how to change onboarding practices mm-hmm. and how to make managers and leadership aware that the rules of the game have changed. And mm-hmm. that if you want to keep very talented Gen Z workers, then you need to adjust uh, how you onboard, how you do training and development, and mm-hmm. how you do follow-up, uh, follow-up development. Yeah. With
0: them. Yeah, It reminds me a lot of just like understanding the culture and that this generation, every generation has a unique culture about them and, yep. um, like you know, onboarding with missionaries from different cultures, like that's mm-hmm. the area that I'm looking at. Of you I have am. to know what culture they're a part of to be able to help them understand the culture of the country they're going to.
1: Absolutely. Seems like
0: that's kind of the same idea for different generations to teach them. This is what this generation, on average, is like. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, what does that look like um like practically
1: yeah uh, yeah uh so i i begin the practical approach from actually a mental health perspective so yeah. uh, my research and many other people's research has shown that that gen z is the most anxious and depressed generation in probably the last 80 years mm-hmm. so with that, if you're anxious, if you have high levels of anxiety, this is going to fuel your need Mm -hmm. to have constant validation or affirmation that you're doing your job well. So practically, what that looks like is actually changing how we do 30, 60, 90 day reviews, and how we do coaching in in the business setting. So one thing that, that I encourage, and I'll be out in Tulsa, Oklahoma in August, doing a workshop on this Mm -hmm. is, uh, I'm a huge proponent of incorporating what are called cognitive behavioral skills or technique into the onboarding process and even the mentorship coaching training process. So, Mm One thing that we see here in Colorado Springs uh, with a lot of our nonprofits, because they're faith-based, they actually encourage their employees to come in, be in by eight o'clock, 830, whatnot. And we want you to take that first 30 minutes and have your, some people call it quiet time, devotions, uh, reflection time, whatever you want to call it. But the expectation Mm -hmm. is that you get into the Christian scriptures, you pray and -hmm. you reflect. And so, i I work with with organizations to understand that you can take the that same principle of carving that time out
0: mm-hmm.
1: and encourage encouraging your gen Z uh, employees to practice cognitive behavioral techniques yeah. uh, as part of the first fifteen minutes of the day. Do these breathing exercises right. or uh, mental image uh, imagery exercises things yeah. like that. So that they start their day in a less anxious frame of mind, right? And then you know, I I work with leaders to uh, to execute those techniques. So, Mm -hmm. and with that, I just want to say real quick, just so I don't get any emails or (laughs) retweets or anything. uh, uh, CBT is one of the easiest things that that people can do as a self care. Uh, You don't need to be a licensed or trained therapist to do them. However, what I do point out to our managers and leaders is you may come across some very severe challenges that you should not even touch with a 10-foot pole. You're not trained to do that. And you you should refer um, those employees to -hmm. to somebody that can give them greater care than that. But as a general approach, yeah, uh, I think everybody would do better if they practiced oh, yeah, uh, some type of CBT. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So
0: kind of coming back, I know I, we, I jumped into talking about <laughs> uh, the different, different generations, but when we talk about servant leadership, are there companies that come to mind that you would say they demonstrate this well in terms of how they do it? Um, maybe companies that my students might know about, or even companies yeah. that you can explain a little bit more about.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's see. So I would say uh, right now in COVID season or coron- coronacation, as I like to call it, a vacation, <laughs> um, you know, we are seeing a lot of small businesses hit very, very hard. We're seeing a lot of yeah. layoffs uh, right now. Our unemployment rate, you know, in this snapshot of time yeah. is is significantly higher than it's been Probably, you know, near <laughs> For, the Great yeah. Depression, right. uh, yeah. it's that bad, yeah. uh, but it is a snapshot of time. Uh, so uh, what I have seen small business owners, and, and I know small business owners who have done this and are doing it now here in Colorado Springs, yeah. uh, uh, when March 1st came around, they didn't pay mm-hmm. themselves as owners. Mm -hmm. they paid their employees and laid their employees off. Now, some people Mm -hmm. say, well, that's not very kind to lay your employees off. Um, You know, if there's no money in the bank, guys, there's no no sensing in in saying, we're gonna keep you on payroll when there's no money in the bank. Right. Um, There is a a coffee shop that I'm thinking of here uh, in the Springs, uh, one of the top coffee shops in America actually. And they're doing what they can to keep some money in their employees' pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, they're only doing about thirty or forty percent of the sales that they would normally do yeah. uh, during this time, but they are uh, doing everything they can to keep their employees' benefits going, things like that yeah. um, i think I think some of the the things that that we can look at organizations and look at going back to things like listening, uh, empathy, healing, awareness, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have organizations in America that have gone through uh, really difficult times and needed strong leadership in order to, to right that ship. So I'm thinking of one yeah. organization uh, ended up losing their CEO, just a whole big debacle um, it was all over the news and a new leader came in and everybody that was still employed freaked out and was afraid of culture change, things like that. And some, mm-hmm. I know the person who, who sent this email, um, to this new CEO and was like, you know, we just don't do things around here. I mean, it was a very charged email yeah. and very unbecoming, you know, for an employee to send to a CEO. Yeah. And you know, instead of firing the guy uh, or, you know, severely reprimanding him or something like that, he emailed the, he emailed this employee back and said, uh, you know, I'm really confused. Thank you for the email. I don't really understand where this is coming from. Can Mm -hmm. you and I meet and discuss what you're concerned about so that I can better understand yeah. Uh, what's going on in your heart and maybe even understand what's going on in this organization. And so I think, yeah, yeah. you know, some of those things we, you know, we haven't put the technical language around it as servant leadership, yeah. uh, but it, it definitely is. Um, so, I mean, I could probably tell you story after story, but those are some of the ways that, that it's yeah, played yeah. out where people are putting others before themselves as business owners Um, or even just taking the time to understand where employees are coming from, especially after they've gone through uh, a very difficult time. Yeah, awesome.
0: So the last question um, that I have is, you've talked a little bit probably about research that you've done in your dissertation. Is there any other aspect that you would like to share um, related to your research, kind of what you found?
1: Yeah, yeah. Man, there is so much. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll yeah, I mean, is there anything? Document. I mean, it's such a broad question. That's true. Yeah. Is there anything <laughs> that that you would that may be in your mind to kind of zero in yeah. on? Yeah.
0: Um, I guess maybe the the best or the the question I have maybe is more of how how do you come to understand culture, like if you want to say hey i want to better understand the differences in generations um what 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 would you recommend in terms of how to study that how to understand that
1: oh okay yes okay so you know i've really enjoyed um uh exploring gen z exploring gen z is something i continue to do yeah, i yeah. think that with with any generation uh we we should think of ourselves as explorers. We mm-hmm. should think of ourselves getting on a boat, raising the sails, um, pulling out the compass and and heading into culture. That's yeah. kind of the, the metaphor that I like to use with yeah. it. Uh, but what I really geek out about is the study of generations. And mm-hmm. so uh, one thing that that uh i'm in talks with an organization about is how to map out the lifespan of a generation and what to uh how can organizations assist their employees as they age through their lifespan so with gen z we could you know we'll use that for instance um uh in gener in in generational theory, which is a theory developed by Neil Howe and a guy named Strauss, um, and they wrote a book called Generations, and they wrote another book in the late 90s called The Fourth Turning. Uh, I recommend both of those books. Uh mm-hmm. foundationally, that is what uh my institute, the Institute for Generational Dynamics, strives mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. is is uh, communicate a generational framework through their theory. Mm-hmm. But with Gen Z, for instance, uh, Gen Z is growing up in a season. We want to use that word, a season uh, that is called a secular crisis or just a crisis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we look at that and some people say, oh, you know, if Gen Z is born in 95, 97, then 9 is the beginning of that crisis. It's not uh and 9-11 has very little impact on gen z uh the majority of gen z were not around when that happened right and the ones who were around have very little cognitive recollection of yeah, that happening. so that doesn't shape them what does shape them and will shape them is about three or four things uh the first one is iphones and mm-hmm. we see that they iPhones came out in 2007, 2008. Uh, So iPhones, social media really began to take off. uh, Mm -hmm. And this began to uh, affect how Gen Z uh, process information and view the world. Mm -hmm. So we think of ourselves as, as older people who are not internet native. Uh, we see ourselves as deeply affected by technology, like, oh, I'm addicted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we may be addicted, but we didn't grow up with it. So, you know, imagine a brain that is developed by the Mm -hmm. thing we are addicted to. It just just takes a completely different uh, nuance with that. 2008 financial crisis. A lot of Gen Z remember the 2008 financial crisis. And they saw their Gen X parents going through a very difficult time mm-hmm. uh, trying to make ends meet, survive, things of that nature. So that has a profound effect on them as well. Mm-hmm. The second thing that's having a profound effect on Gen Z is our current political crisis. Mm-hmm. So um, nothing that I say should be taken as, as uh, support Right of any political party, uh, but we are in the most polarized political time that we have been in, in probably the last eighty years. Yeah, and so they are seeing this play out, especially because there there's no common ground mm-hmm. for our uh, for our political process. So if you are pro life or pro abortion, there's no common ground with that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are pro-intersectionality, anti-intersectionality, there's very little common ground with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like our parties are so far apart that we won't even cross the aisle to uh, to make things work. And we're seeing that play out, which I think will be the next crisis or mm-hmm. another part of the crisis. We're seeing it during COVID. So mm-hmm. we are seeing uh, Democratic governors like Newsom out in California get lambasted by, uh, by Democratic ideologues uh, because he's thanking the Trump administration, or at least thanking, you know, organizations that are empowered by Trump. And so the ideologues mm-hmm. are out there saying you shouldn't do that you're just pandering, et cetera. It's like, well, so what you're saying is we we're not allowed to find common ground and we're not allowed mm-hmm. to thank people uh, when appropriate. So yeah, um, social media, smartphones, 2008 financial crisis. I'd also throw parenting styles in there, but we don't have time really to jump mm-hmm. into that. And uh, this COVID crisis. And yeah. then we'll, the fifth thing I think will be reelection in uh, November. So yeah. whoever wins this presidency will will really chart the course for probably the next 20 to 25 years of yeah. the American experience. So the thing with Gen Z is uh, most of them are adolescent or I'm sorry, most of them are children or teenagers going through this experience.
0: Yeah,
1: Gen Z is age seven to 25. So only, you know, only, you know, a small segment of maybe 19 mm-hmm. to 25, you know, has some control over their lives. So right. this is a generation that, uh, that we would say is growing up in the shadow of a crisis mm-hmm. and they really can't contribute anything to it. So they feel powerless to some mm-hmm. degree. Uh, yeah. And also that crisis, you know, they will be told for the majority of their adult life and even right now in their younger years, they are told that they are taken care of, mom and dad's taking care of them. Um, uh, The government is taking care of them. Somebody is taking care of them to try and shield them from the horrors of this crisis. But for the most part, they will feel like they were not able to contribute anything to it. So when they get into what are called their rising adult years, so this is going to be like age 21 to 38, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, They'll continue to play this out and they will uh, steer themselves into very orderly jobs. So engineering, mathematics, accounting, nursing, things like that. Uh, We've seen that every time we have a Gen Z generation and there's been three or four previous Gen Z generations, mm-hmm. uh, we see this happen.
0: Yeah.
1: But when they get to midlife, they are going to say, I have played it safe my whole life mm-hmm. and I'm bored to tears and I really wanna spread my wings and push right. the limits of of my experience. And as they start to do that, mm-hmm. two, two things will happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, older millennials above them that are in their elder stages and the generation that is coming behind Gen Z Mm -hmm. um, will tell Gen Z, no, this isn't your part to play in history. Mm -hmm. Now's not the time to expand your, your Mm -hmm. wings. Um, You need to fall back into place and fulfill your societal role. Mm -hmm. And so that will force Gen Z into just kind of a quiet, Subsistence—I don't know—subsistence is the right word, but um, they will quietly fade to the background
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, through their midlife and elder stage. So, yeah, so that's typically how it works with the Gen Z generation. Mm-hmm. Um, if people want to learn more or anything, mm-hmm. you know, like that, um, I highly recommend anything that Strauss and Howe wrote on yeah. generations so generations in the fourth turning. Yeah, um, you're always free to reach out to me Mm -hmm. um aaron at dr Mm -hmm. um or you can reach me on social media as well so but um but yeah generations are very dynamic yeah Uh, Yeah. they are cyclical so that means that they repeat themselves and they repeat themselves in patterns of four so there's four different types of generations and gen z actually is the tail end of this cycle so Mm -hmm. Um, any children that are uh, age six and younger, they're actually a new generation. All my kids. <laughs> and your kids, yeah, your kids yeah. Are, are not a Gen Z generation. So yeah. um, They'll be taking a different kind of shape. And I can actually tell you what kind of shape that they will take. Okay. And uh, it's just really fascinating stuff. Yeah. So, um, Very cool.